you haven't been here, I don't know um, how you have missed it if you had, but Summer Blast was just a week where we spent time serving in three locations here, Captain Tilly Park and Rufus King, just doing crafts, doing games, but most importantly, just talking about Jesus and sharing Bible stories and telling people about Jesus who had never really heard any of these stories. And we're just praying that God would move in that, and it's just a time for us to love on this community and engage uh, here in our city. And it is something that uh, is just incredible. Just a quick closing remarks kind of to that. is I said this last year, and I'll say it again, is for me... Uh, to just watch that, um, I'm proud of a lot of things that New Hope does. But there's just, there's, I don't think there's anything that compares just to my heart as your pastor watching you all serve this past week. You have no idea what it, how proud I am to be pastoring you, to be pastoring a group of people that I watch and see tons of giftedness, willingness, and availability to just be, just to love on people. And so I just want you to know I'm honored I'm grateful to be your pastor, and I'm so grateful for your faithfulness over this past week. Now, it is hot, so we're going to keep comments short. I brought my rag this week. I realized in the last couple of weeks I needed a rag. And for those, and I don't know if it's specific just to this um, group, but for all my African-American pastor friends, when I watch my favorite African-American pastors, they always have a rag. Now, I understand that they're a little bit more excited than I usually get, but I said, hey, that's not a bad idea. And so I've, I've got a rag. For all of you who have maybe have grown up in that tradition or watch um, African-American pastors, they just get excited and they sweat. And so they know what to do. And so when I'm watching a pastor, a lot of times I'll be at a conference and I see a gentleman walk out with a towel in his hand. I go, oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. <laughs> uh, it's just my response. It's going to be good. Because he knows he's about to get excited about preaching God's word to the point he's going to sweat. Now, I am excited, but we're all sweating. It ain't just me in here. And so I promise... Um, to be fast. I want to be faithful to the text. I don't want to skip anything. We're going to be faithful, but listen fast because we've got some things to cover today. Um, but I want to also respect and honor the reality um, that uh, it is a little bit warm. But thank you for coming and allowing no obstacle to get in the way of us worshiping and studying God's word together. So if you're with me in First Peter, we just simply say amen. Amen. Let me read, if you will. Um, it's not going to be on the screen, verses 1 through 7. Verses 8 and 9, our text, will be on the screen in a moment. But let me read the first seven verses. So if you don't have a Bible, grab one in the seat back in front of you. If you grab one of the black ESV Bibles, we're on page 1014. 1014. Let's read, beginning in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Now, Paul's real fast. Verses 3 through 9 are all together. So that's why I'm reviewing the last two weeks so that when we get to verse 8 and 9, you'll understand it. So, Two weeks ago, we talked about verse 3. So, which is what? We bless God because He has caused us to be born again. We didn't make ourselves alive. He has caused us to be born again. Born again to what? To a living hope through the resurrection from Jesus Christ from the dead, 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith to thirdly, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We talked about this, verse 6, last week. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, though it perishes, it is tested by fire, it may be found, that is, your genuineness of faith, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, our text for this evening, verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, referring to Christ, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If you have a handout, let me just go ahead and fill in the main point of the sermon for us today. It is this. Love and rejoice, comma, and, love and rejoice, and obtain salvation. Love and rejoice and obtain salvation. Now, let me give just a, just a side note to what I'm not saying. If you read that alone, it may read as if I'm saying, if you love God enough, if you rejoice in Him enough, if you believe in Him enough, which is in the text, then you obtain salvation. And that's not at all what I, this is saying. What verse 8 and 9 are saying, that because of verse 3, He has caused us to be born again, and because even through trials, He is guarding us by His power, we remain faithful, that through all of that, and even though we don't even see Him in all of that, we love Him, Believing in Him, we rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible, and that is evidence of you obtaining your salvation. So this is not love and rejoice with the result of obtaining salvation. All of them are effects or results of what was said in verses 3 through 7 of God bringing us to life. So I want to be clear on that, but just in verses 8 and 9, these are the emphasis that we are to love, that we are in believing, we rejoice, therefore it's a proof and evidence of obtaining salvation. So, two questions today. I, I just No fill in the blank. I just gave them to you, so you know where we're going. The first question with this text we want to ask is, do you love and believe? Do you love and believe? Verse 8, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now, why did Peter make two statements about not seeing? He says, though you have not seen him in the past, you love him. And though you do not see him in the present, you still believe and rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible. Why didn't he just simply say, you've never seen him? And the reason why is you've got to remember who's writing. Peter, there is no contrast between you and I. We haven't seen him in the past or the present. But Peter did see him in the past. We got to remember that Peter is the apostle who lived life with Jesus. He saw Jesus. He saw the miracles of Jesus. He did miracles himself. He is one of the leaders of the church. He had spent a lot of time with Jesus. And he's contrasting and recognizing that his audience hadn't. He's recognizing Peter's similarly saying something like this. I've seen him and I love him. Sure. But even better, you've never seen him and you love him. And then neither of us see him now, but we still believe and rejoice with a hope that is inexpressible. I've titled today's message, Seeing is not believing, believing is seeing. 
I have a friend of mine who, um, all of us have a friend like this one I'm about to describe. This is your crazy friend. This is your friend, crazy in the sense of, let me define what I mean by crazy. You dare them to do something, no matter what it is, they just do it. They're just up for an adventure. They'll do anything crazy, what I'm calling that crazy, in that sense of just going, no, why would you do that? So, for example, this guy, he absolutely loves Jesus. And because of his love for Jesus, love for missions, um, it takes him all over the world. And one time he was serving uh, for an extended period in China, and he was in China, and he was in a street market or somewhere, I don't know. He's telling me about this afterwards. And he's explaining to me that he ate a scorpion. And I said, "Uh uh-uh, dude, no way. He said, I did. I ate a scorpion. I said, I won't believe it until I see it. And then he pulled out his phone, and he showed me a video, right? All of us can think of examples maybe similar to that, where someone tells you something, and you just go, "I I will never believe it until I see it. And we have within us this desire to see something fully before we ever put our faith and trust in it. And I want to challenge us today that it's actually the opposite a lot of times. And this is what we see in Scripture. That seeing is not believing, but believing is seeing. So two things I want us to consider with this question. The first is, would you believe in Christ more? Would you love Christ more if you could see Him? If you could see Jesus, if you could sit down face to face and have a conversation with the resurrected Jesus, would you believe him more and would you love him more? Immediately, all of us would go, I think, I think so. Like, I think I would love Jesus more. I think I would believe him. But I want to challenge today that oftentimes that is not the case. Let's give some examples. If we just study the New Testament alone, where Jesus came and in the Gospels and he walked and lived life, he did countless miracles for people. He showed his glory. He preached. He was faithful. He fulfilled multiple prophecies. And he wasn't all that secretive about it. He made it clear that he was, he was the Son of God. He made it clear that he was God in deity. He made all these things clear. And then he proved it through miracles. And then we understand that there were not many that followed him when all said and done. Think about it this way, specifically the feeding of the 5,000. It's the only miracle outside of the resurrection that's in all four Gospels. So it's an important miracle. There were over 5,000 people that were there when Jesus took one little dude's meal and he multiplied it to feed over 5,000 people and then there was food left over. All the people saw that. Then through the night, Jesus went across the sea with his disciples. He went to the other side and everybody was like, hey, where's this guy who just made food happen? Where is he? I want to go find him. And so they come across the other side of the sea and they find him. And Jesus says this statement to him, you're only following me because you saw a miracle. You, you saw something and you're following, but you don't actually believe in me. You don't actually love me. Because if you did, you would eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he was referring to what would be the crucifixion and what we know as the Lord's Supper. But what happened? All those people who saw one of the greatest miracles ever, they left him. I want us to see and I want us to recognize just because we can see if we were able to actually see Jesus, that doesn't guarantee we would love him. I think of Jesus talking to Peter, and I imagine Peter has this in mind. Jesus talking to his disciples, and he says, my time has come. He's referring to the crucifixion and to the time where he would go to the Father. And he said, my time has come, and if I don't return to the Father, I can't send the helper to you. The helper won't come. He's referring to the Holy Spirit. And he says, it's better that I go 
so that you can have the Holy Spirit. Now, let's be honest for a second. Because I'm telling you, there have been many times in my life that I wish I just had Jesus next to me. I remember in, um, I think it was high school, maybe middle school, a disciple, a guy discipling me. When, just, when you're thinking about a sin you're struggling with, just say, when you're tempted with that sin, just imagine Jesus next to you because you would never sin if Jesus was sitting next to you. And so I want you to see, underlying in that advice, which is actually isn't awful advice, but in that advice, there's this implication that Jesus being next to you is better than the Holy Spirit inside of you. However, Jesus says that it's actually better that I'm not beside you so that the Holy Spirit can come and live inside you. See, and it's when the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts and it's through the revealed, complete teaching of God's Word and the Gospel and the Holy Spirit using that, it's not seeing Jesus that causes us to believe, but it's through the work of the Holy Spirit we believe in order to see. And this is what, Jesus, or this is what Peter is saying and encouraging, that you see because you believe. So two things to consider with this question. The first is, would you believe if you could see Jesus? Would you love him if you could see Jesus? And the honest answer is not necessarily. That's not necessarily true. But the second thing I want to say to this is many, maybe in this room, but definitely in our culture, would argue and would say, I don't believe in Jesus because I can see truth, absolute truth, somewhere else. That I can see that because this is true, that Jesus is not true. Let me give an example to this. I'm not against science, but for those who claim science as the foundation and the only answer for truth, I hear statements like this at times, that what I believe to be true, I only believe to be true what can be proven by science, right? That, that's, a, that's a truth claim. That's a belief. And it's because that I only believe what is true that is proven by science, therefore I don't believe Jesus because science points in the opposite direction based off their interpretation. But here's the challenge. That statement that I only believe what can be proven by science, my question is, can that statement be proven by science? If science, meaning that I can watch it and see it with my eyes, that I can touch it with my hands, that if only I can see that it is proven through the scientific method, do I believe it, that, that statement can't be proven by the scientific method. Here's the point. I'm not against science, not at all. But my point I'm saying is, is that even in a mindset and a worldview that wants to hold hard to empirical, enlightened thought of the scientific method for truth only, you're still putting your belief in that to begin with. All of us, what we believe to be true, all of us have a foundation that presupp a, a presupposition, if you will, about what we believe that has belief in it. So for someone, because I get this a lot, well, you believe in something you can't see. I believe in what I can see and prove with science, and I can trust that only. But the statement itself can't be proven by science. Therefore, you're believing in something. Well, guess what? I'm believing in something too. The point is simply this. All of us are believing in something. All of us are believing in something to be true and to be our Savior. And what we are recognizing is that if you go, I don't believe in Jesus because it's a, it causes you to make a faith step, well, guess what? Any belief you have also does the same. And so therefore, we're on level ground with that. So do you love and believe? Now, before I move on to the second question, let me, let me just kind of bring this together. Let me just really ask the question, do you love and believe? Though you have never seen him, 
You, you've, never, you've never been like Thomas, who said, I'll only believe it if I see it. We know him as Doubting Thomas. Because he, because the disciples came and said, Jesus is alive. Jesus has been resurrected. And he said, I won't believe it unless I can see it. And Jesus shows up and he says, here, touch my hands. Touch my side. He allows him to see and he says, it's better for you to believe without seeing. This is what Peter is saying. You've never seen him, but you believe. Do you love and believe in Christ though you've never seen him? Second question, are you filled with inexpressible joy? I'm trying to figure out this week how to explain this joy that Scripture said can't be explained. It's inexpressible. And here's the best way I can explain or try to describe the joy that is being talked about here. First, it's a joy that is not of this world. The Scripture says that you, um, um, in Him you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Meaning, it's a joy that's divine. It's a joy that's been filled with the glory of God in the joy. So it's not earthly joy. It's not circumstantial joy. We've been talking about that. All of us know the joys of just being an innocent kid and having no tons of responsibilities and just enjoying life. We didn't recognize it maybe in the moment, but we look back on it and go, man, that was, those were simple, joyous days. Th- those are circumstantials. Those are earthly joys. Some of us even know the joy in the sense of happiness the temporary happiness that comes with sin. Let's be honest. We wouldn't be sinning if we didn't enjoy it to some extent. But there is some earthly, fading joy that comes in sin. All of us know what that's about. All of us know what some of this type of joy is. But this type of joy is completely different. This is a joy that's been filled with glory. This is a joy that is inexpressible. This is a joy that is not defined by circumstances. This is a joy that comes in Christ. I want us to look at this, and, and we're going to wrap up soon. I told you I was going to try to get to the points in how this is being described. When we look at verses 3 through 9, we see a beautiful picture of salvation being described in us worshiping Christ. We've already unpacked this idea that that this joy, he talks about it in verse 6, in this you rejoice, then he talks about rejoicing in the joy down at the bottom, but in the middle he talks about grievous trials. We're not saying that this joy means you're never going to have a tough day. We're not saying that this joy means you're never going to feel pain. We're not saying any of those things, but what we're saying is this joy is transcendent above all of those things because it is found in Christ. That even in moments of financial difficulty, even in moments when we don't have a job and we don't understand how we're going to pay bills, even in moments of, of finding out a sickness, even in moments of death, even in moments of great persecution and suffering, we will feel those pains. The text isn't saying you won't feel those pains, and I'm not saying you won't feel those pains. But what Peter is saying, who he's writing to people in great persecution, he's saying you're being persecuted You've never seen Christ, but yet you still love and rejoice with Him in a joy that is inexpressible. Question, when you think about your life with Christ, is that how you describe your life? I gave this illustration uh, about a month ago, but oftentimes when someone asks for your testimony as a believer, Christian, tell me your testimony, we immediately go back to the moment where we put our faith and trust in Christ. So for me, that might be, sound like this. When I was six years old, I surrendered my life to Christ. And therefore, I'm saved and I've, I've given Him and I've been born again. That, that I'm alive in Christ, right? 
to amen to that, right? We hear many stories like that. But physically speaking, if I look at you and go, hey, are you alive? I'm not sure you're alive. You're not going to go grab your birth certificate and prove to me that you're born. You're going to blow in my face and go, I'm breathing, right? You're not going to give me a past tense example to defend your faith. You're going to grab my hand and put it on your chest and you're going to go, feel my heartbeat? Feel my pulse? I'm alive now. This is what this text is talking about. I want you to draw your attention towards the end in verse 9 when it says, obtaining the outcome of your faith. Obtaining is not future. It's not in the future tense. It's in the present tense. Peter could have clearly said, and you will obtain the salvation of your souls, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. But he says, no, you're now currently obtaining. Here's the point. When he's saying that because Christ has made us alive in him, that because we are born to an inheritance, that we are born to a hope, that even though we're in trials, we rejoice, even though we've never seen him, we love and believe and have this inexpressible joy. He's saying that is all evidence of a salvation that has come in your life, that is, you are obtaining it right now. Listen to me. Through sin, brokenness, heartache, and hurt are the results. Not joy. Joy is fruit of a salvation in your life. Joy is what we long for. I'm telling you, I am sickened by the hurt in this world. As a pastor, I have the great joy and privilege of pastoring people through difficult situations, but it's also pastoring people through difficult situations. I see a lot of brokenness, not only in other people's lives as I get to walk alongside them, but in my own life. And I'm sick of it. I'm looking forward to a, a day where that is no longer there. We long for a glory-filled joy. And in Christ, when we love Him, although we have not seen Him, that when we believe in Him, when He has made us alive, we bless Him because we have already received aspects of our salvation to come, which is love and joy in our hearts today. Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And I want you to answer that question not when I was six years old, but do I have a joy that is inexpressible in my life today? Do I love him today? I think I loved him 20 years ago. I think I loved him when this happened. But I don't know that I could say I love him today. I don't know that I can say I have a joy that's inexpressible. Now, once again, we're all going to have moments where we are overcome maybe in sin and we, have, we lack that temporary joy. But if the character of your life is a lack of love for Jesus and a lack of joy that is inexpressible, can I just lovingly say to you, I don't know that you know him. I, I don't know that he's made you alive. And I want to challenge you in love that today... Would you believe in him? And would you put your faith in him? And would you then see him? Would you see the outcome of your faith, the, the salvation of your souls, and the joy and love in your hearts? Let me close by saying three things that we see here that we, we think about how we are obtaining salvation. There are three aspects to salvation in Scripture. We call it just, or Scripture calls it salvation, but it gives three languages to it. We see first justification. Okay, I'm going to define these words. Second, we see sanctification. And third, we see glorification. Justification is the moment that I'm often referred to when I was six years old when Christ made me alive. 
when Christ forgiven me, he made me righteous, he made me just before him. In that moment, let me define it this way, that is when the penalty of sin is taken or removed from our lives. And in two ways, not only the verdict of guilt, that penalty, that we are guilty before God, but also the shame of guilt of sin. And it's in that moment of justification at the beginning when we give our life to Christ that he not only takes the verdict of guilt, but he takes the, he takes the shame and the emotion of guilt and he fills our heart with a glorified joy that is inexpressible. Do you know that joy? First, we see where he removes the penalty. Second, now as we walk life as elect exiles, suffering sojourners on this side of eternity, we're in sanctification. And this is where he removes the power of sin. First, the penalty of sin. Now, the power of sin. All of us struggle with sin, even as Christians. But the more we walk with Christ and the more he fills us with his glory, I immediately think of 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled faces, meaning we focus in on him, we are being glorified, we are being transformed back into his image, one degree of glory to another. So a little bit more, he just fills us with his divine glory and, tr and transforms us. He's removing the power of sin over our lives every single day. And then one day in glorification, when we do see him face to face, he is going to remove the presence of of sin completely out of our lives. Penalty, power, presence. And what Peter is saying here when he says you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul, he's saying you've already got the penalty removed, it's been filled with joy, and he's continuing to fill your life with that divine glory today. Therefore, all of verses 3 through 9 bring us back to the beginning of verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you bless him with your life? Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you believe in him? And do you have a joy that is inexpressible? Would you bow with me as we pray together? Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. Jesus, I thank you for this joy that's in my life that cannot be explained but can only be experienced. That it's a joy that goes against all circumstances doesn't make things easy, but at the rock and the core of all situations and circumstances, there's a joy knowing that I am yours, knowing that you have set me free, knowing that I'm a child of God. There's this peace, there's this joy, there's this hope of knowing that you have saved me and are saving me, meaning that one day you will save, that you'll completely remove the presence of sin and the effects of sin out of my life that death will be no more, hurt will be no more, sorrow and sickness will be no more. But in the meantime, Father, I recognize as we walk through this life with trials of various kinds, we walk through it with a joy that is inexpressible because we know you and you have filled our lives with divine glory. So Jesus, I pray over this room and I pray two things. One, I pray for the person, the heart, the soul in this room that may not know you as Lord and Savior. They may have gone to church their entire lives. They, they may read their Bible every day. They may do all these things, but if their soul has not been made alive in you, they're still dead. And I want, I pray that you would quicken hearts today, Jesus, to see and believe in you. Yes, we come to church. Yes, we read our Bibles. Those aren't negative, but those things don't allow us to be saved. You do. Your grace, your mercy. So in this moment, 
Jesus, I pray that hearts would turn to you. I pray that hearts would understand Romans chapter 10, that if you'll just confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you'll repent of your sins and turn unto Christ, you will be saved. Jesus, I pray that hearts would do that and in this moment you would make hearts alive unto you. And then second, Father, I pray over everybody in this room, all of us are either just coming out of a trial, in a trial, or about to go into a trial. All of us are really close to trials in our lives. And we need your joy. We need you. So, Father, I pray over this room, would you fill hearts with your joy? Would you fill hearts with your love? Would you fill hearts with you? And I pray that no matter where people are in a trial, that you give them strength, give them mercy, and that your Holy Spirit in them would carry them through. We love you. We worship you.